Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 334, Who Do You Say I Am? In this episode of the Trinity's podcast, you'll hear the entirety, even the Q&A portion, of a new presentation I gave in August of 2021. This event was organized by my friend Priscilla Jervy. It was held at a community center in Antioch, Tennessee, which is right near Nashville. The talk is an extended argument for a biblical Unitarian understanding of New Testament Christology. It's designed to try to get past proof text wars And you'll notice that the argument absolutely does not presuppose the truth of Unitarian Christianity. What I do here is take three rival hypotheses and ask what sorts of things would we expect to see in these authors if that was their view. I think on the whole that it's a very powerful argument, and it's not an argument that can be easily answered. Now, the theologically sophisticated listener may wonder why I start off by comparing the hypothesis that these authors in the New Testament thought Jesus to be a man with the hypothesis that they thought him to be a God, but not a man. So I start with biblical Unitarian Christology versus Docetism. The reason is that I think it's always been the case that a lot of people who consider themselves to be Orthodox Christians are Docetists about Jesus. Their view, when push comes to shove, is really that he's an apparent man and not an actual man. But also, I think it introduces the listener to this style of reasoning and helps to set up the more difficult comparison of the New Testament with what the creeds say. While this presentation will be intelligible audio only, I do recommend the YouTube version, which has been posted by 21st Century Reformation Online, 21stcr.org. And I've got a link to that in the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. I have more than 100 slides, and I'm referring to a lot of passages. And occasionally, I just refer to them and don't say them out loud. But if you want to hear the whole long Q&A session afterwards, that's been edited out of the video version. But it's here in this podcast. So without further ado, over to me. My talk is called, Who Do You Say I Am? It's an attempt to get people to actually think about some of the main theological options that are out there. And before we get started, I just want to state up front a couple of my assumptions. One is that the New Testament books are our best information about Jesus. We don't have any comparable information beyond those. They're from the first century, arguably all of them. And if we want to know about Jesus Christ, that's where we have to go to get our information. Uh, Second, I think we should approach these books expecting to find basically one view about who Jesus is. It's fashionable now to emphasize all the differences between the different authors. But look, it's a small group of people writing in a fairly small frame of time, several decades probably. We should expect that they basically agree about Jesus and see if we can find out what that is. Another assumption I have is that these authors are competent to communicate their main ideas about Jesus. 
I'm assuming they could actually get their point across that Jesus taught them well and that they were able to transmit what Jesus taught about himself to others. I think all the books in the New Testament, except the last one, are fairly clear in their teaching, and they're not at all esoteric works that have hidden encoded meanings that need especially learned or especially spiritual people to be able to, you know, use their secret decoder ring and find out what the hidden message really is. I also think the New Testament books are inspired. But even if you didn't think that, and we're just looking at it historically, the points that I'm making today would work just the same. So, since ancient times, people have been talking about humanity and divinity. And humanity is just supposed to be that property or properties in virtue of which the owner is a human. So, you and I are supposed to have humanity, and that's supposed to be what makes us human, whatever it is. And uh, chimpanzees don't have it. Gorillas don't have it. Little green men from Mars don't have it. Angels don't have it. On the other hand, there's divinity. And that's just whatever properties it is in virtue of which the owner is a god. So instead of talking about humanity and divinity, we can just talk about humans and gods. Now, ever since ancient times, people in different ways and different cultures and different religions have said, well, wait a second, could there be something which is both? Is there any overlap between those categories? Could there be a person which is both human and divine? And we're going to talk about a couple of different versions of this because that's a popular answer that people give. So, really, there's kind of three main options about who Jesus is. And all through Christian history, you, you see some version of these three options. Now, you have to be worried because it looks like on the face of it, there are contradictions between divinity and humanity. So if I say, hey, I got some squares over here and some circles over here, and guess what? I drew this one thing the other day that it's both a square and a circle. Well, no, you didn't. I won't fly. And don't give me one of these. Some people call this a squircle, but it's neither a square nor a circle, right? Just consult your definitions from 10th grade geometry class. That's not a square circle. There can't be a square circle. It's a contradiction in terms. Okay, so we have to worry about whether something which is divine and human is also a contradiction in terms. Squircles are not the overlap of squares and circles. If squircles means that yellow thing I showed you a second ago, it would be in a separate class altogether, right? It's neither a circle nor a square. And in fact, we know there couldn't be anything which is both. This is just basic critical thinking 101. So, yeah, we have to worry about whether there even could possibly be something in that middle category of both, because if it, if it implies a contradiction, it's just straight up impossible, and we can move on and think about other things. Now, there is a fourth option that has been suggested about Jesus, but it's been very unpopular, and this is to say that Jesus is an angel. So, not a human strictly, might look like a human, but you know, angels can do that sometimes, according to the Bible. Not really a god, but this other category of thing. What about that? I'm going to dismiss that pretty quickly for two reasons. One reason is that there really is no positive evidence anywhere in the New Testament that even sounds like Jesus is supposed to be an angel. Nobody says that. He doesn't claim it. He doesn't act like one. There are angels, but, you know, they're not him. Also, this passage in the first uh, chapter of the letter to the Hebrews really rules out that he's an angel. 
So it's, it's talking about the resurrected and exalted Jesus it says, when he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Right, so he's just in a class above the angels, straight up. It doesn't say he's the greatest angels. It says he's greater than all the angels. So that just is a non-starter. Sorry, angels, you can't claim Jesus as one of you. We're really just down to three options. The first option is that Jesus is a man. Second, that he's a god. And third, that he's a god-man. And there's a very important reason why I have god-man, the word, in quotes. I'll explain that when we get to it. All of these views agree that the New Testament Jesus appears to be a human, because he does, right? He has a mom, he eats and sleeps, he walks and talks, he puts his sandals on one at a time, we assume. He doesn't seem like just an apparition, a theophany, uh, or an angel, or a a super-duper alien, or a smurf, or anything. He seems like he's a man, so they all agree about that. But the second one says, he looks like one, but he isn't really one. And the third one says, well, he's actually a god-man. You might think he's a man, but he's really a god-man. So just to clarify the three options, it's that Jesus is a man and not a god. That's option one. Second, Jesus is a God, but only appears to be a man. That's option two. And then Jesus is a God-man, in some sense, both divine and human. And we'll talk about that when we get to it. Now, my standard is Scripture. I don't think it's a subjective matter. You know, people sometimes lazily say, oh, anybody can get anything out of Scripture. Well, not correctly understood, they can't, because it actually has a point of view that you can find out if you're very careful. What is true, though, is that there's kind of a stalemate where people who hold all three of those views, they all have their own proof texts. They have their own favorite three or four texts that kind of sound like it fits what they're talking about. And then one person says, I like text ABC, and the other person says, I like text DEF, and they just go home and have a beer and and nothing gets settled. The kind of critical thinking I'm going to present you with now is just based on common sense. And it's designed to give you a high-level kind of view about how the New Testament presents Jesus, such that even if you're not sure what to make of this or that passage exactly, you can still get a view of the whole thing, and you can decide which one of these best fits the New Testament. Now, one thing that's really striking is that all four of the New Testament Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all have the same thesis statement. And it's not subtle, it's not hidden, it's really clear. In the first three Gospels, it comes at this high point where Jesus is talking privately to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others one of the prophets. Right. Notice they're all human options. There wasn't like a God option or an angel option that was even being discussed. Okay, but he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Peter, who's, you know, the kind of the most bold, faithful leader of the apostles, blurts out the main point of the whole book. You are the Messiah. Now, the Messiah, that is just by definition supposed to be a man, right? A a coming king of Israel, somebody who's been chosen and empowered by God, a descendant of David, 
and then we find out in the New Testament someone's who, who's going to die for all the other humans. So, I mean, this sounds like the Jesus is a man view, but if you look at the Matthew version or the John version of this uh, thesis, they say Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, but they add he's the Son of God. And some people think, well, if he's a real son, he must have the divine essence. And that's a fourth century idea, but that's what they say. So it muddies the water if they think Son of God means something different than Messiah, and they think it means the same thing as God the Son. So what I'm going to do in the rest of this talk is I'm going to ask, what would we expect to see if each of our three theses were correct? What would we expect to see if the authors thought that Jesus is a man only? What would we expect to see if they thought he's a God only? What would we expect to see if he's a God-man? And then we'll just see if they match or mismatch these various expectations that we expect to find, okay? Where am I coming up with these? Common sense. Suppose a professor in a theology class told his students, I want you to write The Lost Adventures of Jesus. I want you to make up some historical fiction. Give me some episodes about things Jesus did and said, miracles he did, and make sure that the point is to say who Jesus is. Say what it is that's really important about this Jesus in your little piece of fiction. I would use these same principles to judge those essays to try to figure out what those students really thought. So they seem like expectations you would just have to approach any writing. Let's see how it goes. So what I'm going to do now is compare two different hypotheses about the New Testament. One is that the authors think Jesus is a man. The other is that the authors think that Jesus is a god. And for each one of these, I have six expectations, and we'll see if they're met or if they're unmet when we actually look at the New Testament. So if they think Jesus is a man, you would expect that Jesus would be called a man with no warning that this is only part of what he is, right? But don't go thinking he's a mere man. You'd really expect some sort of warning like that. On the other hand, if they think that Jesus is a god, then he would often or normally be referred to as God. Because God is what you call a God. Especially in a monotheistic context, there's only one God. You call that one God. And by the way, both of these, according to Catholic tradition, they're officially heretical. That Jesus is a man, they call, oh, that's just that he's a mere man. That's just docetism. He's only apparently human and not really human. But these expectations make sense. And by the way, it's important in this presentation that you look at what you're actually seeing and not just come up with what you know is the right Sunday school answer. You have to actually look and see what's there and what's not there, because it's actually very revealing. So, is it true that Jesus is always or often called God in the New Testament? There's a whole book on this. It was written in the 90s by an evangelical biblical scholar named Murray J. Harris. It's called Jesus as God, the New Testament use of theos in reference to Jesus. He's got 16 chapters on 16 possible texts where maybe some people think Jesus is referred to using some form of the word theos in Greek, which we translate as God or a God, depending on the context. He concludes that in seven cases, he thinks probably Jesus is referred to as God. Now, personally, I think this is way too much. I think there's maybe one case of it. But I'm going to grant him all seven cases for the purpose of this argument. Suppose he's right, that Jesus is referred to as God seven times. Okay, well, how many times is the word theos used in the New Testament? 
over 1,300, something like that. So deep into the book, Dr. Harris comments, on no reading of the data could the claim be allowed that the early Christians regularly called Jesus God. Okay, so that expectation is not met. If you go to the New Testament thinking Jesus is normally or usually going to be called God, you're going to find that he's not. This is just a fact. What about this expectation if Jesus is a man? That he'd be called a man with no warning that, that you know, don't think he's just a man. Well, here are some texts. John eight forty. he tells his Jewish enemies, Now you are trying to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Hmm, no warning there. Peter, preaching in the earliest Christian sermon, Acts 2, mentions Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him among you. Hmm, I don't see a warning there. Paul in Romans 5, For just as by the one man's, he's talking about Adam, the first man, just as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's, that is Jesus' obedience, the many will be made righteous. All right, so he just compares Jesus to Adam. Period. That's all. No warning. Or there's the uh, place after his little trial, uh, mock trial in front of the uh, Roman governor, Pilate. Pilate presents Jesus all beat up uh, to the crowd, and he says, here is the man. And this would be a really great place for the author of John to say, but he was wrong. Well, he wasn't really just a man. You know, little did Pilate know. No, none of that. But you don't see that anywhere. So, this expectation is met. This is just what we always see in the New Testament. It doesn't call him a man very often. It doesn't need to, because it, it always portrays him as a man. Like, that he was a man wasn't really a subject of dispute or debate, you know? Both his friends and his enemies thought he was a man, so it just kind of goes unsaid most of the time. Okay, here's some more expectations. If these authors think Jesus is a man, then he would not be referred to as God or a God unless there were an indication that the word is being used in a lesser sense. Right, we know from the Old Testament and the New Testament, as you're about to see, that beings who are lesser than God can be called God. He even calls Satan the God of this world in one place. Anyway, obviously the word God can be used in the highest sense where it refers to the one true God Almighty, but it can be used in a lesser sense to refer to somebody else. On the other hand, if they think Jesus is a God, then Jesus would not be called a man or be described as human without an indication that this is only appearance and not reality. Right, remember, the view is that he's a god only. Right? So if you go around presenting him as a man, you better have a little hint in there that this is just appearance and not reality. Otherwise, you would be misleading your audience if that's what you thought. That one we can rule out real fast. There's just nothing in the New Testament that even sounds like that. The only thing I can even think of is when Jesus appears resurrected, you know, he just like appears in a room seemingly without going through the door. But, you know, as Paul says uh, in one or two places, the resurrection body just is not quite the same as the bodies we have now. So nobody draws the conclusion that he's just an apparent man, that he's really something, some other kind of being. What he is, is a resurrected man. That's why the dead body isn't there anymore. 
Okay, what about this other expectation that he wouldn't be called God unless there is some indication that the word God is being used in a lesser sense? Now, to me, the least disputable of the Jesus as God passages is this one. It is disputable. There are some people who think the original text in Psalm 45 and this should be translated as God is your throne forever. But I'm going to assume that the translators are right here. He's arguing that Jesus is greater than any angel. Now He's much in a, in a higher position uh, now that he's been exalted to God's right hand. That's the point of the chapter. And so he's saying that Jesus is a fulfillment of this ancient psalm, which originally seems to have been a coronation psalm at the enthronement of a king. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Okay, well, you can just see there are two who are being called God here. There's God. And then there's this other, quote, God who has a God over him. But then there's, you know, God in the, in the original or highest sense. So our expectation is met. Jesus arguably is called God here, and yet it's the kind of God that can have a God over him, which that wouldn't be, you know, the one God Almighty. That would be God in a lesser sense. When the Trinity's podcast returns, what about John 1? famous John 1 passage, I think it's about God's Word by which he created all things. I think the author is personifying, much like God's wisdom is personified in Proverbs 8. But I'm going to give Dr. Harris and many others the interpretation they want, just for the sake of argument. They think that the Word is the pre-human Jesus here, okay? So, in the beginning was the pre-human Jesus, and the pre-human Jesus was with God, and the, the pre-human Jesus was God. That's a bit of a problem because it looks like that, that would be saying that he's the Father. But anyway, maybe it just means he's divine, okay, in some sense. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And then later in the passage, it says, no one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son. I think that's not what it originally said. I think it originally said the only Son. A lot of commenters on John agree. But again, let's give them that. Suppose it says God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. So there are kind of two mentions here, two uses of God that they, a lot of people think refer to Jesus. Suppose the first one refers to Jesus. Is there an indication that it's being used in a lesser sense? Yes. To be God is to be the ultimate source of creation. If God created through this other guy... Well, that's pretty amazing, but that's not being the ultimate source of creation. So, if you want to call this next to farthest back source of creation God, I guess you're using God in a lesser sense. So, there's your indication. What about this second use? If it indeed says God the only Son, 
you know, it says no one has ever seen God, right? And that's clearly God Almighty, the one true God, you know, presumably because he's so glorious and transcendent. Of course, Jesus was seen. He was seen by thousands and tens of thousands. And he's the revealer of God, right? He's God's son. He's an intermediary through which we come to have knowledge about God. Well, that looks like it's using the word God in a lesser sense. Okay, here's another one that's constantly appealed to. The end of John, uh, the resurrected Jesus, uh, you know, just before this, doubting Thomas says, I don't know if I can believe this guy's really alive. I'm going to have to touch him, put my finger in his wound, and so on. Next thing you know, Jesus is standing there and says, Peace be with you. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Now, a lot of readers think that Thomas is calling Jesus his Lord, and he's also calling Jesus his God. I don't think that's right. I think this is a double confession of the one God and the one Lord, like you see in 1 Corinthians 8 and Ephesians 4 and other places. And earlier in the book, you know, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and the Father's in me doing his works and so on. And so, there's a double recognition. I think Thomas recognizes his master, Jesus, his teacher, and he also recognizes God in Jesus. That's the only way Jesus could have been raised from the dead. But, set that all aside, maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe this uh, author is calling Jesus God. He's having Thomas call Jesus God. And notice there's a heavy emphasis here on belief. We're going to have to ask, well, what is it you're supposed to believe here? What is a person urged to believe? Obviously that Jesus rose from the dead, but is that all? Well, we can look at the context. If you look a little bit above it, a few verses before, Mary, Jesus' disciple, is crying. What do they do with Jesus? This body isn't there. And then she sees him, but she doesn't recognize him. And then finally, uh, she recognizes him and she blurts out, teacher. And then he says this to her, do not hold on to me because I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Okay, so let's suppose Jesus is being called God in this chapter. Well, he's the kind of God that has a God. So then the word God must be being used in a different sense, in a lower sense. He says here that he has the same God that you have and that I have. And this impression is confirmed that if he's being called God, it has to be in a lower sense of the word when you look after the passage. And here is John's version of the thesis statement. Jesus has done a lot of stuff. I haven't recorded it all. But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. Right, he's the Son of God. So if he's being called God, then you're using the word God here where it can apply to somebody who's derivative of God, who's below God, who's beneath God, who does God's bidding, son to a father. And again, just as with the first three Gospels, it'd be very strange if they thought that Jesus was God or a God-man and they made this their main thesis. Like, it's such an underwhelming, weird, like, ball drop. Imagine your buddy goes on a date and he meets the love of his life. He's head over heels with this girl, okay? It's like, oh, instant love. I know who I'm going to marry now. And he comes home and you say, how'd your date go? And he says, she she's seemed like she was nice. Okay, so either he's afraid to let on or he's trying to hide it for you for some reason, right? 
But like that's that's not really what he's thinking about the date he just had. Okay, but the authors of the Gospels, they're not afraid. They're not hiding anything. They're not ashamed. They're not embarrassed. Right? They're shouting from the rooftops everything that Jesus taught them. Jesus said, you know, I haven't said anything in secret. I've told you everything. You're my brothers. They're not going to drop a, you know, Jesus is the Messiah as their big main point, if, unless that's really what they think is the big main point. Okay, some other Jesus as God passages, Romans 9.5. And, you know, these next couple ones, they're uh, fun for the grammarians to argue about. Part of translating from the Greek is deciding where the sentences end and what kind of punctuation you put in, because it's not in the original Greek. And so, a lot of translations say here that uh, Paul mentions the Messiah, who is overall God, blessed forever. So, I think it's mentioning Jesus twice, first calling him Messiah, then calling him God. Look in the footnote of that same translation, and then it says, uh, it mentions the Messiah, and then we start a new sentence. May he who is God overall be blessed forever. Okay, so it's mentioning two. It's mentioning Jesus, and then it's mentioning God. I mean, I think the second one's more likely, but suppose I'm wrong. What about the context? Well, you don't get a lot about, you know, the status of Jesus from the context of Romans 9 or 10, not that I can find, but go back a couple of chapters, and there's a big bunch of stuff about Jesus. We already looked at part of it when he compares Jesus to Adam, but here's some more of it. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. God proves his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. Okay, so again, he's an intermediary between God and man. Uh, he's the Son of God. It mentions dying for the ungodly. That's a reference to his crucifixion, whereas God can't die. So, yeah, it looks like if he's called God later on, then the author would be using the word God in a different and lesser sense. Titus 2.13, while we wait for the blessed hope and the manifestation of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Or maybe it should be translated, of the glory of the great God and of our Savior Jesus Christ. Which is right. I mean, I think the second one's probably more likely. It's the glory of both of them, but suppose I'm wrong. Suppose he's calling Jesus our great God and Savior. Well, look at the next verse. He it is who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify for himself a people of his own, who are zealous for good deeds. All right, so he died. God can't die. He's a sacrifice offered to God. He's an intermediary uh, who redeems us for God. So yeah, it looks like God, the word, if we were using it to refer to Jesus in the previous verse, it would be in a different and lesser sense. 2 Peter 1, the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, or maybe it's the righteousness of our God and the righteousness of the Savior Jesus Christ. What about the context? Is there any hint in the context that maybe if he's calling Jesus God here, suppose he is, that he's using it in a lesser sense? Well, I think so. Later in the chapter, we have been eyewitnesses of his, Jesus's majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when that voice was conveyed to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Intermediary, Son of God, receives glory from God. Yeah, 
I mean, it seems like it would be using the word God in a secondary and lesser sense. So it seems to me that if Professor Murray Harris here is right about how many times Jesus is called God, interestingly, every one of those times, you could just take it that the word God is being used in a secondary and lesser sense. So this second expectation for the Jesus is a man hypothesis is met. We don't see him called God unless there's such an indication. Third, they think Jesus is a man. Jesus would talk and act and be described as if the one God were someone else and the God over him. If he's a man, then just by definition, he's under God. All humans are creatures of God and subject to God. Moreover, God would be somebody else. On the other hand, I'm calling this G3. Uh, if they think that Jesus is a God, then he would probably say he's the one true God, and or others would say this about him. And a synonym for God in the New Testament is the Father. So maybe he would just say, hey, I'm the Father, guys. Guess what? You thought the Father was somebody else, but you were wrong. Let's test these. First, that Jesus is a man one. Is it true that Jesus would talk and act and be described as if the one God is someone else and the God over him? Yes, in a whole bunch of ways. Right? He prays to God. He's sent by God. He obeys God. God is pleased with his obedience. This is my son, the beloved. God is the head of Christ, Paul says in one place. And in seven passages, Jesus says about the Father that he's my God. I mean, you can't get any more direct, right? If he was Jewish today, he'd be like, Oi, what's a guy got to do to prove he has a God? I said it. And all these people said it about me. They said the Father was my God seven other times. Okay, well, that seems pretty well confirmed. That expectation is met. What we would expect if they think he's a man, that seems fully met. What about the competitor here? Jesus would say he's the one true God, and others would say this about him. Okay, well, there's no disputing that there isn't any clear passage where he says, hey, guess what? I'm the one God Almighty. I am the Lord, you know, the God of Israel. I am the one true God, anything like that. But there is some fool's gold there. There is some stuff that looks like gold at first glance, but it really kind of crumbles when you shine a little bit of light on it and look at it. So, I'll look at some of those passages. This one is from John 10. It's part of a long argument with his enemies, with his Jewish critics in the fourth gospel. What he has basically just said is that he and God are cooperating in, gathering in the saved, basically. And he says, the Father and I are one. Now, this is an ancient way of saying that we are on the same team, we're doing the same thing, we're about the same purpose, that kind of thing. But you have to understand, when it says the Jews in the fourth gospel, usually that means his Jewish critics, the Jews who rejected Jesus. And they are very often portrayed as stupidly, spiritually blind knuckleheads. They're almost like rodeo clowns. Like, they come out and run around and keep you entertained every once in a while. Right? Like the guy who's, uh, when Jesus mentions being born again, he's like, oh, I have to go back in my mother? Like, and he's kind of a, a better character too, but he just, you know, he's like stupidly, literally interpreting things. Okay. So Jesus says, the father and I are one. The Jews took up stones to stone him. He's like, whoa, what you doing? I've shown you many good works from the father for which are these. Are you going to stone me? The Jews said, it's not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you, the only human being are making yourself God. 
or it could be translated making yourself a God, but probably God, just like it is here. So if the author of this book thinks that Jesus is a God, Jesus would be like, yep, you got me. You people, you're finally getting it. I'm proud of you now. You know, sometimes you're stupid, but today you're having a good day. You're finally getting it. Mm, that's not what happens. What happens is Jesus lays a very sophisticated argument on them. It's very interesting. Let me paraphrase the argument before I read it. He's saying, you guys, as you interpret your scriptures, right, what we call the Old Testament, you guys think that people to whom the word of God came can be referred to as gods. Now, I'm greater than those guys. I'm the Messiah. And I'm not even claiming the word God. I'm claiming to be God's son. So it can't possibly be blasphemy. You're just wrong about the blasphemy. Because I'm greater than them, and I'm claiming this lesser title. You're thinking these people that are less than me, it's okay if they're called by this greater title, God. That's his argument. And that is how they interpret this particular psalm. It's a devastating argument. As written, Jesus answered, Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. He's quoting a psalm. If those to whom the word of God came were called gods, and the scriptures cannot be annulled, can you say the one whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world is blaspheming because I said I'm God's son? Mic drop. Did you catch the correction? We're going to stone you because you're making yourself God? He's like, uh, God's son, guys. And by the way, there's no way that can be blasphemy. Okay, so it's no good to stop halfway through the passage and say, see, Jesus' contemporaries knew what he was getting at. No, no, guys, those are the clowns. Born again doesn't have to do with going back in mama. Thank goodness. You don't have to literally eat Jesus either, like happens in another passage. They think he's advocating cannibalism. But they're taking things literally constantly, right? And they're over-interpreting that statement that he and the Father are one. Another famous text, Jesus is again arguing with them, and he has just said, um, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Obviously, as a prophet, here's their outrageous comeback. You're not 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? Guys, did he, did he claim to see Abraham? He's like, yeah, me and Abraham were hanging out one time, shooting some pool. He was a great guy. I miss that. Ab no, he doesn't remembering to like be with Abraham. He said Abraham saw his day, which is long after Abraham's day. Okay, but he doesn't stop to correct them. Sometimes he just twists the knife in and makes them, he just like pushes their buttons once they start reacting stupidly and he makes them more and more outraged. And then sometimes he just gets away. He does this a couple of times in the book. So he says, very truly, I tell you before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to throw at him, but he hid himself and went out of the temple. I guess he had some fast moves or something. I mean, he doesn't say it was a miracle. Like <laughs> he had a good 40 yard dash, maybe. Now, did these guys think he was claiming to be God? Like I am who I am. Like God says to Moses. Maybe. I mean, that would explain why they're going to stone him. But the translators are being a little funny here, because this phrase in Greek, ego a me, is an idiom of self-identification. Right? So, a lot of times it can be translated, I'm the one, or I am he, or just, it's me. Right? So, in one of the Gospels, he's walking on the water, and they're like, oh no, it's a ghost. And he says, ego a me. Not, hey, I'm God. Like, guys, it's just me. Simmer down. To be fair, you should just translate this before Abraham was, I am he. 
Which he is he? Well, go back a couple chapters. He's talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. She says to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Right, in Greek, that's the same two words, ego eimi. It's correct to translate it this way. I, yeah, I'm that guy. I'm he. Which one? The Messiah, the Christ. So when he says, before Abraham was, I am he, the meaning is that basically he was destined to be the Messiah even before the time of Abraham, not even just during the time of Abraham. It's a way of talking about things that are predestined to put them way back at the beginning of time or in the distant past. There's a strong argument from silence based on our evidence that Jesus never claimed to be a god. And so, if Jesus had claimed to be a god, his enemies would have gleefully accused him of this at his trials, at least the Jewish trials, right? Because claiming to be God, and there's only one God, so you're claiming to be the one God Almighty. You can't do that. Bad Jew. They would gladly stone you. But what happens at his trials is they make up various stuff. They, you know, tell us plainly, are you the Christ and things like this? But they don't even try that on him. That's pretty strong evidence he was not going around claiming to be a god. So that last expectation is not met. When the Trinity's podcast returns, a fourth set of rival expectations for our two rival hypotheses. Here's a fourth one. If they think Jesus is a man, he would not be depicted as having divine powers, unless there were at least sometimes indications that he's empowered by God, who is someone else, to do such things. On the other hand, if they think that he's God, then he would display divine attributes, including at least the following. He'd be untemptable. He'd be perfect in knowledge. He'd have unlimited and underived power. He'd have essential immortality and he'd have underived authority. God doesn't get permission from anybody. That's one thing he doesn't do. He doesn't get power from anybody either. He, he has all power. Again, back to that famous sermon by Peter in Acts 2, mentions Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did through him. There's your indications, right? That God, who is someone else, was the power behind his miracles, basically. John 14, Jesus says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. So, particularly, this is emphasized in the Gospel according to John, that the source of Jesus' divine teachings and his divine powers, his miracles, is the Father. The Father is in me doing his works. 
He says in another place, this is how God testifies to him, right? I'm not just testifying on my own, but there's someone else who's testifying for me. It's my Father, and he does that by these means. Matthew 12, Jesus says, But if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come to you. The Spirit of God, that's the power of God. Again, Peter preaching in Acts 10, that message spread how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Yeah, I mean, casting out demons, you might think, well, that's a divine work. Yeah, in a sense it is, and God can empower people to do that. You might say it's a divine work to part the Red Sea, but there you have Moses parting the Red Sea because God empowered him to do that. Well, in the New Testament, Jesus is said to be the fulfillment of Moses' prediction in Deuteronomy of this prophet like me who's going to come. That's the paradigm that they're looking at Jesus through. He's a prophet. He's more than a prophet, but he is a prophet. So the fourth, Jesus is a man, expectation is fully met. It's in several different books, right? Why is it not on every page? It's just a background assumption, right? Once he's in the prophet category, everybody knows why he does these miracles. And people are citing this as proof that, hey, God really is with him. So then God's the source of the miracles. All right, does Jesus display these divine attributes? Here's where it gets interesting, right? We can just knock all these down like bowling pins. Does he have untemptability, right? No one can tempt God. He's all-knowing, all-powerful. There's, there's no hook you can get in him. You can't make God think that something wrong is a good idea. He's never having a bad day. He's never hungry. There is no weakness in God. Anytime he thinks about something wrong, he's going to be like, why would I do that? He doesn't care. You can't tempt God. Okay, well, you can tempt Jesus explicitly. Is he perfect in knowledge? No. The Father knows something that he didn't, at least at this time. Does he have underived power? No, we just heard that he did all these miracles because God is with him. That's derived power. Does he have unlimited power? No, he doesn't. Sometimes his power runs out. He needs a nap, just like me. You don't do that if you're all-powerful. Does he have essential immortality? Is he such that in principle he could not die? No, he died. Now, the New Testament says he's immortal now, that God has raised him to immortality, but essential immortality means that in principle you're just incapable of death, and no conceivable circumstance could you die. Well, he doesn't have that feature, but God does. How about underived authority? No. All authority, he says, has been given to me, Matthew 28. And Acts 17, this is one of the most astounding things about Jesus in the New Testament. God has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man he has appointed. I mean, God has the authority to judge just all on his own. He doesn't need any any, uh, appointment, any giving of authority. But here he's empowered Jesus to do that. Okay, so this one's just ruled out. That expectation is unmet. Fifth, if Jesus is a man, he would be depicted with typical human limitations without any warning that these are only apparent limitations and not real limitations. He just, hey, there's this guy, he's got human weaknesses, and there'd be no concern, no worry about those at all. On the other hand, if they think he's a god, they wouldn't depict him with typical human weaknesses unless they turn around and give you some hint that those are just apparent and not real. Well, they never do that. We've already seen 
that they depict him as limited in knowledge, as gaining his power and his authority from somebody else, as obeying somebody else's commands and so on, you know, as not knowing certain things. There aren't any warnings that the limitations aren't real. Now, he does occasionally have supernatural knowledge, like a prophet will do, but that doesn't tell you that he's faking it when he says, who touched me? You know, and then he eventually finds out it's this lady who was healed by it. This is the last set of expectations to compare these two hypotheses. If Jesus is a man, he would not exercise divine privileges unless there were some indication that God had granted these to him. And then if Jesus is a God, Jesus would not say he is under a God. He would not be portrayed as being under a God. Because if he's a God, he's the one God. He's the Lord God Almighty. God doesn't have a God. We've already seen that he is portrayed as being under a God many times in many different contexts. So that expectation is not met. What about no divine privileges unless it's basically communicating to you that God gave them to him? Well, actually, it's there. Now, there's a different version of this incident in Mark 2, and Matthew has made a couple of interesting changes so you don't mess up like some people do and get the wrong message out of it. In Mark 2, they say, you know, this guy's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And some people mistakenly agree with the spiritually blind clowns, and they think that's what is teaching. Matthew helps you not make that mistake. So he tells the story and he adds a few bits. Some people were carrying a paralyzed man lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Then some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. He took out the statement that only God can forgive sins because he doesn't want to get that into your head. But Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is it easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, stand up, take your bed, and go to your home. And he stood up and went to his home. When the crowd saw it, they were filled with awe, and they glorified God who had given such authority to human beings. Is forgiving sins a divine prerogative? Yes, because God is the main one harmed in a sin, I guess you could say. But he has authorized Jesus to forgive sins. And it's not a one-off deal either, because Jesus, having gotten this authorization, turns around and gives it to his apostles in John 20. He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Okay, so now the apostles, and some would interpret this, all Christians have the ability to forgive sins on God's behalf. Guys, it's not that surprising. If somebody owed me a thousand bucks, I could send you to that person, and I can say, if they say they're real sorry, and they say Dale's a nice guy, I don't know, if they're not a jerk, you can just let them off the thousand bucks, right? And if you do it, I've done it through you. And by the way, you're not just announcing or pronouncing my forgiveness. No, when I send you, I have not forgiven them. I've not forgiven the debt. Right? Okay, but if I can empower you to forgive a thousand bucks that some, someone owes me, surely the all-knowing, all-powerful God can pass on the authority to forgive to whoever he wants. How would he be all-powerful? He couldn't do that. Okay, here's a divine prerogative. Receiving religious worship. 
normally you'd think this is something that's reserved for God alone. But Paul, in talking about Jesus's, you know, amazing, victorious, humble service to God, even through a terrible death, writes this, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of the obedience, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here you have God granting the privilege of being worshipped to Jesus. And he's not a rival to God. The worship given to Jesus honors God, is what this says. When they talked about Jesus being exalted to God's right hand, that was understood to imply that he was worthy of religious honor or worship under God. Another depiction of that is in Revelation 5, but we should press on. Yeah, this expectation is met. Jesus would not exercise divine privileges unless there were some indication that God had granted these to him. Okay, where do we stand so far? Well, the New Testament data confirm the hypothesis that the authors thought Jesus to be a man and not a god, and they disconfirmed the hypothesis that the authors thought him to be a god and not a man. All six of the expectations for if they think he's a man, those were all met. All six of the expectations we would expect to see in the New Testament if they think he's a god were unmet. That's bad. Looks like it doesn't fit the New Testament. When the Trinity's podcast returns, what would we expect to see if these authors think that Jesus is a God-man? Now we're going to bring in the rival hypothesis, and this is going to make your head hurt. So get yourself a coffee and uh, get ready to think a little bit here. So look, if we're um, coming up with a hypothesis, we're looking for a true hypothesis, right? And so we don't want a hypothesis that implies contradictions. All contradictions are false. Whatever implies a falsehood is itself false. All right, so we don't want a hypothesis that implies contradictions because we're looking for something that's true. We're looking at what is it true about what these authors really think about Jesus. Now, here's the thing. Some of arguably standard divine attributes clash with what are plausibly essential human attributes. All right, so if you're a human, it looks like you're not essentially omniscient. In principle, you could be lacking in knowledge. That's true of any human, right? but not God. There couldn't be something that's true that God doesn't know. Any human is possibly temptable. Maybe someday God will make us where we can't be tempted, but any human is such that in principle, they can be tempted, right? Just make us tired, make us frustrated, make us hungry. Boom, we're temptable. We're not that smart. We're not that self-controlled. God, again, you're an idiot if you try to tempt God. It would make no sense. It's like trying to move an immovable object. 
A human is by definition created. God is by definition uncreated. A human is by definition not essentially immortal. We could be made immortal at some point, but we are such that we also could be capable of death. Not so with God, because God doesn't depend on anything. He doesn't have a body. He doesn't have to eat. He doesn't have to have a certain environment or temperature, etc. So, if you're going to say something's a God-man, and that means it's divine and human, it looks like that's the concept of something contradictory and so impossible, like the concept of a square circle, right? Not the squircle. That's neither a square nor a circle, but the thing which is a square and a circle. So, it's a square and not a square. So, this looks like it's kind of a non-starter for interpreting the New Testament. Like, you don't want to say they're going around contradicting themselves all the time. Um, they think God can't die, but they think this guy died, and they think he's God. Like, you, do you think they're really that confused? But that's not the end of it, because uh, Trinitarian theologians think a lot of different things. And maybe you didn't know this, but it's indisputably true. Some Trinitarians will deny that Jesus is either a God or a man. Not both. Neither. That's why the word God-man is in quotes. It's like Christian science. Not Christian, not science, if you know what it is. It's like a contradiction in terms. God-man, but not a man and not a God. Okay, what do they mean? They mean that he's human and divine in a special sense that they have come up with. This is arguably the most orthodox view. If, if you're looking for the view that Catholic, uh, Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox tradition holds, it's, it's basically this. At least arguably. There are Trinitarians who would just, yeah, we like contradictions. Well, that's very uncharitable for reading these authors. think they're that confused. Um, or they say it's a mystery. Okay, but this is another Trinitarian view. They want to say that Jesus is human, meaning that the eternal divine Son, divine in some sense, not a God exactly, that guy is not a man, not a human person, but is man. In other words, the word man can be applied to him because he assumes, mysteriously combined with, in some sense, an impersonal human nature. So, there's this eternal, in some sense, divine person, and he takes on a body and a soul that are like yours, but in your case, the body and the soul make a person. In this case, they don't. They're just, just a body and a soul. The reason they say this is they don't want there to be two persons there, because that seems like crazy. To have two Jesuses, the divine one and also the human one, at a certain point, they were like, no, we can't say that. That'll never fly. The New Testament, there's only one Christ, one Son of God, one Jesus. This is how they get it. They say it's the divine guy, and the human guy, well, there isn't a human guy. But you can call the divine guy human because he's combined in an indescribable way with a body and a soul that don't make up a human. Okay, I told you is a special definition. Is the Son of God? No, look, the eternal son is uh, not a god. The only god is the Trinity, they say. So, the son's not the Trinity. So, the son's not a god. He's a person within the one god. So, he's divine in some sense, but not in the sense that implies being a god. 
but they still think he has all of the attributes or at least most of them. Maybe he's not independent or underived, but anyway. Okay, so he's divine in this sense that he's a person within God and he's human in the sense that he has taken to himself a body and soul that don't make a human person. And so he looks like a person. And anyway, that's what they say it is to call him human. Now, what's important to see about this is that God-man in this sense isn't both human and divine. It's a fourth thing. It's not a God only. It's not a human only. It's not both a human and a God. It's a God-man, but it's neither a human nor a God. Again, it's a divine person within God, which has assumed an impersonal human nature. This is the most orthodox view. All right. So, what kind of things would you expect to see in the New Testament if the authors thought this? Well, I mean, it's not too hard. First one, Jesus would be referred to both as God or a God or divine and as a man or human, and this is important, along with some insistence that this is true even though seemingly contradictory. So, they call him a God and a man, basically. You might think that's impossible, but hey, it's okay because it's a mystery or something like that. Or it's an apparent contradiction, but it's not a real contradiction. Something like that. Never happens anywhere in the New Testament. They do use the word mystery in the New Testament, but what it means is a thing which was formerly unknown, which has now been made known by God's revelation. So, nowhere anywhere in the New Testament does somebody say, hey, I've got this theory and I ran into a contradiction, but that's okay. You should expect apparent contradictions because this is a mysterious subject, my friend. Nobody does that. It's a later thing, and a lot of us think that's a pretty crummy excuse, honestly. Because if you have some theory and there's a contradiction implied by it, like, you got to go get a better theory. But you're saying, well, but in my case, I love my theory so much. In my case, it's good that there's an apparent contradiction in my theory. Well, no, it's not. What's so special about your theory? Okay, we'd expect some indications that Jesus is human or has a human nature, but don't go thinking he's a man, not a human being. Man called that human nature, body and soul, impersonal, but not a man. I mean, I can't even think of anything remotely like this, can you? He just very unconsciously calls him a man a bunch of times, and it portrays him as a man. It's not what you'd expect. This view is that he's truly human, but he is a pseudo-man. If a man is a human person, he's not that. He's only an apparently a human person, but he's, quote, truly human. Okay, but you don't see this. Third, some indications that his divine powers are relativized somehow to his divine nature and his human limitations are relativized to his human nature. What does that mean? Well, you'd expect to see some talk like he's limited in knowledge as human, but he's unlimited in knowledge as divine. Or, you know, he feels worry and pain as human, but he's incapable of suffering as divine. Or, uh, he's temptable as human, but untemptable as divine. Now, I don't really think that helps anything at all, because if you're untemptable because you have one property, and you're temptable because you have another property, you just are temptable and not temptable, and that is nonsense. But, never mind that, do you see this anywhere? 
No. I mean, Jesus is just this character. He does things. He says things. No one ever sits back and goes, that was the divine nature, but that thing over there was the human nature. <laughs> they do this, you know, in the time of Athanasius in the 300s, but they don't do it in the New Testament. So it's not what you'd expect. Fourth, you'd expect some indications that Jesus is under a God as man, but not under a God as divine. All right, well, let's look at a few of these statements that he's under God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. Opening to Ephesians. No, I don't see any relativization there to, you know, humanity and divinity or whatever. He's on the cross. My God, my God, who is only my God insofar as I have human nature but not my God insofar as I have divine nature, because if you have divine nature, you're not under a God. Nope. Nothing like that. Here's the passage in Revelation where Jesus calls the Father his God uh, four times. Revelation 3, 11 and 12. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. If you conquer, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. You will never go out of it. I will write on you the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. I mean, there's just nothing in the context, right, to make us think, oh, okay, well, that's, that has to do with the human nature. That's because of the human nature. It's just not there. So that expectation is not met. Fifth expectation, you'd expect to see, right, because the view is that he's human and divine in that he's divine, that he's the second person of the Trinity, he's human and that he has a complete human nature. You'd expect to find a clear teaching that the one God is the Trinity, the three divine persons together, and that the Son is one of those, one of those three. Now, there isn't any clear passage, right? If you say, look, I'd love to believe in the Trinity. Please show me the Trinity passage. You can't find a clear one. But you can find something that kind of, sort of, sounds like it's Trinitarian. There are a few passages where God and the Son of God and the Spirit of God are all mentioned. And in this one, they're even in the right order, right? Trinitarians always want to say it, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, because they believe in divine processions. But I'm not going to go into that today because it's way too late for divine processions. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Okay, but here you got Father and Son, Holy Spirit, one, two, three in a row. Well, that's pretty cool. And you're baptized in the name, and name is singular. So is this saying that they're the same God or they're persons within God? No, I mean, in the New Testament, the Father is synonymous with the one God. So God's the first one mentioned. Oh, then there's also the Son of God and the Spirit of God. So this just doesn't say that the one God is the tripersonal God. And I think what I've uh, heard from some grammar-oriented people is that in the name of here is to be understood distributively, like it's, un it's equivalent to baptized into the name of the Father, into the name of the Son, and into the name of the Spirit. And the name, I think, represents the reality. So Christians are being baptized into the one God, the one Lord, the human Lord Jesus, and the one Spirit. Yeah, okay. I'm good with that.
end of second Corinthians, Paul blesses them and he mentions the three. They're not in the right order, but the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Okay, but look, God's one of the three. God's not all three of them together. It's just right on the face of the passage. So, I mean, it's consistent with God being a trinity, I guess, but it, it also is consistent with the one God being the Father. Ephesians 4, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Again, God is one of the three, and it's not just three here, and they're in the wrong order. What's going on here? Are they trying to hint at the doctrine of the Trinity here, that God is tripersonal? No, I call these early Christian unity slogans. They weren't unified by a bunch of bishops yet or by anything else. Christians were scattered around a wide area. Their churches had been founded by different apostles. And so there was a theme with the apostles, and especially with Paul, to emphasize the things that all Christians have in common. And so Paul just dumps out a big bucket here of all the things that Christians have in common everywhere in the world, whether they were founded by Peter or Paul, etc. There's one Christian body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Oh, and by the way, one God, who's the Father. So that's really what he's doing. And not only is there not a clear Trinity passage, but the New Testament seems to say very straightforwardly, and we've already seen this a couple of times, that the one true God is just the Father. And so Jesus in this prayer in John 17 refers to the Father as the only true God. Okay, well, if he's the only true God, then he has the status true God, like God in the highest sense. And nobody else has it because he's the only one. Right, that's what Unitarians think. That's not what Trinitarians think. For us, there's one God, the Father. 1 Corinthians 8 mentions one God, a Father of all, like we just saw. 1 Timothy 2.5, there's one God and also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus, himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all. That one God is the Father we know from the, the intro to that book. Paul always sends greetings in his writings in the name of God, that is to say, the Father, and in the name of Jesus the Son. This expectation is not met. It's not going well. One more. We would expect to see controversies with the Jews opposed to Jesus and his movement. There were a lot of them. They're all over the book of John, Pharisees in the book of Matthew, Sadducees. We would expect to see Jewish op opponents arguing that one who is divine cannot be human, that's what Jews think, and that three divine persons is tritheism, not monotheism, because that's what Jews have been arguing for many centuries now. It never happens. I mean, the big controversy in the New Testament is, is Jesus really the Messiah like he says he is? And then after the resurrection and ascension, the big controversy is, can Gentiles really follow Christ without also following the Jewish law? Those are the controversies, but these just are unheard of in their day. So my third conclusion is the New Testament data disconfirm the hypothesis that these authors thought Jesus to be a God-man. They don't sound like that. They don't say that. I know that's what you're supposed to say, but this is just a clash of later orthodoxy with what's in the New Testament. So out of those three main views, and we ruled out the angel view, 
the one that seems to have New Testament support is the first, that Jesus is a man, period. That's why the thesis of all four Gospels is that you are the Messiah who is understood to be a man, not a God, not a God-man. If this makes sense to you, then you can find some like-minded Christians, hopefully in your area, by looking at UnitarianChristianAlliance.org, where you can find individuals and churches. You can also find us on YouTube. There's some excellent videos that we have there and some other social media. Before I go, though, let me give you a serious warning. Don't go around saying that Jesus is a mere man. The New Testament Jesus is a man, but he's not a mere man. As we already saw, God appointed this man to judge you someday. The idea traditionally is, oh no, if you rob him of his divinity, nothing important's left. Really? All authority has been given to me. You have to worship him. Taking his divinity away, which was never given really, doesn't diminish him. Uh, You might think it shows how incredible God is that he could do these things with a man. This is the Jesus who demands your obedience. Why aren't you doing what I say? You know what I say, but you're not doing it. You're going to call this guy a mere man? This is the Jesus that if, if you blow him off, you're wandering in darkness. You don't know how to live. You don't know how to relate to God. You don't know how to have a clean conscience. You don't know how to be a part of the kingdom of the coming age. If you blow him off, you're out of luck. Mere man? I don't think so. Notice what he says. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. Whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. Mere man. If you reject him, you reject God. Because God has sent him to you. Even if you reject followers of Jesus, you're rejecting God. So, you know, put your hand over your mouth before you refer to the New Testament Jesus as a mere man. There's nothing mere about the New Testament Jesus. Thank you. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Q&A time. Does anybody have a question or a comment? Thank you.
But today, there's not one theologian, not one person from all the churches that bothered to come today, maybe out of curiosity. What are they afraid of? Are they so intimidated? What is the problem here? The two questions are, first of all, uh, how can people ignore the straight-up assertions that Jesus is a man in the New Testament? In a way, it looks pretty obvious that he's not a god or a god-man. And why is nobody even curious about this point of view? Those are good questions. It's part of Protestant self-image that we are the Bible people, and those poor, silly Catholics, and those are, we don't even know about the Orthodox, but the Catholics, they have all this later tradition that they adhere to. But we're the Bible people, we Protestants. So whatever we think, it must be what the Bible teaches, right? And John 1 says Jesus is God, right? Right. So, I mean, obviously he's God. Maybe he's a man. I don't know. It's a mystery. It's part of tradition to, first of all, stick to the canon within the canon. There's a small handful of favorite texts that people will point you to in which they think Jesus is being called God, for instance, or that kind of sort of sound like the Trinity, like those ones we discussed. And people don't read the whole New Testament and try to think about it. They're just like, well, what's the chance the majority could be wrong? Now, this is a risky thing for a Protestant to say, what's the chance the majority could be wrong? Because in the 1500s, before there were any Protestants, all the Christians in the world had statues and images that they genuflected before. They all prayed to the saints and Mary. They thought that uh, God's grace has to come through bishops and the church, and all the Western Christians believed in the Pope. And you say, well, how could God let so many people go wrong in the mainstream? I don't know, but he does. I mean, he just lets us foul things up. It happened with the Jews. It happens with the Christians. And so, a lot of people just um, have never heard a case like this because it's not standardly taught. And if you've never heard it, you think, well, this must just be a conspiracy theory. It must just be a couple of oddballs out there. Why are people afraid? There's a general fear around this topic that, first of all, if you quote, deny the Trinity, you're going to hell. But if you think about the Trinity at all, you might end up with some terrible heretical view, and then you'll go to hell. It's really a very strange view that God would let somebody's judgment hinge on whether or not they accept some very kind of far-out, difficult speculations. I mean, what's interesting is that most Protestants in practice they don't think the Trinity is necessary, right? Somebody comes down and gets saved. They don't tell them about the Trinity. They say, do you think Jesus died for your sins? And the kid says, yeah. Do you repent of your sins? And the kid says, yeah. Or maybe it's a 50-year-old man. Doesn't matter. And they're like, great. Now you're saved. Now we're going to baptize you next week in church. And then later you're like, what? There's this Trinity thing? Like, why did nobody tell me about that? They don't think it's really essential, but Catholic tradition in the Athanasian Creed says it's essential. Pastors, the priests, the seminarians have not done a good job dispelling fear around the topic. They're kind of happy to just let it sit in place. And then people can kind of just assume that they know what's up and it's good to be the king. But in my experience, most people that you talk to or the laity of friends believe, and I've even heard David Jeremiah say this, I'm telling you, there's a large group say, if you don't believe in Jesus, you're not a Christian, and you're going to be lost. And yeah. there is many people, basis of, it's a salvation issue to so many. 
That's true. It's part of Catholic tradition, and it's part of Catholic tradition that the mainstream reformers like Luther and Calvin were not willing to re-examine properly. Some of the other reformers did, and they got it right, but historically they haven't done as well. Yes? What would you say when people be baptized while they're in So the question is, uh, should you baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit? Because in the book of Acts, they just baptize people in the name of Jesus. Some Unitarians will argue that maybe the text in Matthew originally just said, baptize in my name or something like that. But the text as we have it in the best Greek manuscripts that we have do have it as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I myself have baptized somebody and said that thing, but I think it's okay because what it means is I'm baptizing you into the one God, into the one Lord, and into the one Spirit, which are the things that we all have as the blessings of the new covenant. About baptizing in the name of Jesus, I think in the 20th century we've become obsessed, and specifically the Oneness Pentecostals have become obsessed with thinking that they got to get the magic formula just right. Like if you don't say the words, it's not going to work or something. It's almost like they're viewing it like a spell or an incantation. And I just don't think they had that. Um, It did become traditional at some point to baptize people the way it says in Matthew. But I think originally it was an initiation right into being a disciple of Jesus. And I don't, I suspect there wasn't, you know, some strict formula that you had to use. And so that's why they didn't really worry about whether or not they said that formula in Acts. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. Either way, they're being baptized in the name of Jesus, right? It's the same thing. All these concerns, you know, did I get baptized in the right way? I I think it's kind of wrongheaded from a New Testament perspective. Sir? That he's an angel? Yeah. Yeah. I think of a fifth one myself, where Jesus is fully human, he's the Messiah. And in light of others in the Old Testament who are called God, such as Moses, who was fully human and spoke for God, who was called God. Uh, judges, uh, who spoke for God, who was sometimes called God. Um, and Jesus, um, we, who was fully human. God was in Jesus, and he was speaking for his Father. So in that sense, uh, could, could, could it be said that in a lesser sense, not in the absolute sense at all, not even close to the absolute sense, so the question is, is, isn't there a fourth option that Jesus is God in the sense that he speaks for God first person and God is in him? I think that's just a version of the first hypothesis that he's a man. Notice I didn't say anything about whether he pre-existed. Some people think that if he pre-existed, he wouldn't be a man. That's what I think. But other people think, no, he could be a man, but some existed before he was a man somehow. Whatever, he's still a man. Any prophet, look at Isaiah or Jeremiah, they can speak first person for God and say, I, Yahweh, am going to do this, I say that. And there are some places in the New Testament where Jesus appears to be doing that very thing. Although usually he's speaking as himself, but you could argue that in a few places he's just speaking on behalf of God. So I don't think that's a different view. I think that's a human Christology, you could say. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I had a walking conversation with a minister, and I gave him my opinion. I believe Jesus, only begotten Son, the Father, Holy Spirit, yeah. and God, one God. Now, after this went on for about an hour and a half to walk, afterward, I just asked him, said, Do you think I'm a Christian? And without any hesitation, I go, Oh, no. And it was shocking to me. I, I didn't get it. Yeah. A lot of Trinitarians think if you're not a Trinitarian, you're just flat not a Christian at all, like you belong to some other religion. It's a strange view, and I, I think where it comes from is it's often Protestants who have still accepted like this Catholic standard of what's truly essential. Right? Whatever essential whatever is essential in Catholicism is just whatever the church says. The church is the boss. They're a more primary source of authority than the New Testament. They say that all the time. So if they say it's essential, it's essential. That's just how it is. Now, wait a second. I thought Protestants based all their beliefs on the Bible. So we should not say a belief is essential unless it's portrayed that way or said to be that way in the Bible. Okay, so look at Peter's sermon in Acts 2. He preaches the gospel filled by God's Spirit to a glorious effect, and all these people are born again. And you never ever get the Trinity or the deity of Christ. So I guess even if those are true, they're not essential because all those people were saved. There's something very strange about the tradition I described before where they don't tell you this when you're coming in. When you're getting saved, they don't bother to hit you with all these heavy mysteries. But then later on, they're like, well, yeah, but if you deny this, you're not a Christian at all. Look, it's like a contract. Like if you're let in under one deal, we can't now turn around and say, you can't be a Christian unless you accept this completely different deal. It's weird. And also, who authorized us to change the terms of the New Covenant? We don't think that the Pope, etc., or the bishops are a divinely ordained institution that would have the power to change the deal. And if it wasn't required originally, it can't be required now. It's God and Jesus who come up with this, not us. We can't change the terms of the covenant. Orthodoxy is in a strange place. It's just traditional to dismiss people who believe in a human Jesus as not Christians. Well, I mean, you sound like you just dismissed Peter and John and Paul. So that's kind of bad. It's been my experience that implies when you talk about they won't even commit It is fear. I mean, the more knowledgeable a person is about the Bible and about early Christian history, the more they see that a lot of the things that they're saying are very weak in that they don't have a strong New Testament foundation. And so when somebody starts poking on your sore spot like that, you're like, no, you don't want to get into that. The thing is, if you never get into arguments, you never lose arguments. Now, it's interesting, it's changed in the 15, 16, 17, 1800s. The kind of view like I just presented, it would be argued against. 
by learned people because they could see that, oh, these are actually very powerful arguments. And moreover, the more people hear them, the more people get convinced by them. So if we want to uphold Catholic tradition, we sure better refute this stuff. So you have all these book-length debates. What's happened since the mid-1800s is the establishment has just decided they like it better that they don't have to talk about these things. Partly it's because Unitarian Christianity um, burned out of its own accord. It went astray of its own accord. And so that was their excuse just to ignore it. It's for cultists. Next. When the only Unitarians they've ever run into are Jehovah's Witnesses, and that is a, in some ways destructive cult, then they're just like, well, that's, that's cult stuff. Cultists deny the Trinity. It's lack of knowledge, but it's also... They like it where they don't have to argue about this, because it's actually very hard to argue. Like, those expectations I came up with, there was nothing weird there, right? Like, it's just, how do these guys sound? Do they sound like they hold this view or that view? Just like very plain, flat-footed reasoning. They don't like that. They like to play around with the speculative stuff. It's a fun game. You know, in academia, when I was in it, I met several people who were atheists or agnostics, but they would publish professional articles and books about the Trinity and the Incarnation because it was just so much gosh darn fun. It's like a Rubik's Cube. Like, I turn it this way and I get contradictions. Like, maybe I can solve this and do something really clever. And like, they're presenting at theology conferences and stuff. They don't care. They're atheists. You can talk to them for five minutes and they'll tell you sometimes, or you can just tell. Uh, so, people like to play around with the speculative stuff, but they don't really have the tools to think critically about it. It's kind of a bull session. It's a fun little activity, but it's not really serious. Unfortunately, that's kind of what's taught in seminaries. If you're Trinitarian and you say you're Trinitarian, you, you can say a lot of silly stuff, and nobody cares um, because you're on the team. You're, you're on the side of the angels. You can say a lot of goofy, silly stuff about the Trinity, the Incarnate. You can say it's a true contradiction. Uh, you can come up with something that nobody ever thought of before, you know, in the last 2,000 years. Say, what about this, guys? And like, oh, okay, whatever. They don't care. The truth of it isn't a big concern. They're not that serious about it. There are some that are serious about it. And uh, what they do is very interesting because everywhere you turn, there's there's problems, either with the Bible or... Christian history, or just conceptual problems. Like, for instance, if you want to say Jesus is divine and human in that there's a divine self in there and a human self in there, this is what Origen thought, the famous early Christian scholar in the 200s. He thought the divine nature was lesser God. That's what the, the word of John 1 is. It's a lesser God than God. But also, there's this man. It's a body and soul, but it's also a man. Well, I mean, this is very clever, but it's crazy, right, as far as the New Testament is concerned. So, the tradition veered in the direction like I explained a uh, century and a half later than that. But uh, today, the search is ongoing for, hey, what about this? Could this maybe make sense of the Incarnation? Hey, what about this? Could this make sense of the Trinity? But when you see that it's not really well motivated by the Bible— then you're like, well, why are we doing this game? Like, it takes all the fun out of it. If there's not a good motivation for all this heavy theorizing, why do we need it? And the answer is we don't need it at all. It's just a weight around the ankle of Christianity that's holding it back. 
Because what's a fun bull session in the seminary late night hangout time uh, is not at all fun to a Muslim who is considering following Jesus or a Jew who's considering following Jesus, or a philosophy major who's considering following Jesus and doesn't like to believe contradictions. Right? These people don't think it's fun at all. What they need is a Christianity that's believable, and that's what we've got here in the New Testament. Yes? You just said uh, the possibility of something happening to be true this is a pit that they fall into really easy. And by they, I mean lots of apologists and theologians. I guess it's human nature, right? You got this little notion. It's like your pet idea. And you come to the Bible and you're like, well, this sounds like it could be consistent with my idea. And this bit over here sounds like it could be consistent with my idea. Well, a lot of the other stuff isn't. But you just ignore that. Because this bit here seems to fit my idea. And then you sort of convince yourself that it's actually teaching what you've come up with. That's why you need a broad view like I presented. Because then even if you can find three texts that sound kind of sort of like your idea, well, you need to keep looking at the big picture. Now, as far as Unitarians are concerned, we know that many Unitarians might say that you're not saved, you're not even a Christian if you don't believe that Jesus is coming to God. Well, as far as Unitarians are concerned, do they take a position on that? Do they say, well, you, if you don't believe he's um, Jesus isn't God, and therefore you know, your salvation is questionable? Um, some Unitarians merrily turn around and present Trinitarians with the mirror image of their own damning tendencies. So the Trinitarian, oh, all Unitarians, you're a bunch of phonies, you worship a false god, you're not, you're not Christians, you're going to hell. And some of my Unitarian friends is, oh, all you Trinitarians, you're worshiping a false god, you're going to hell, you're not Christians. I disagree with this. I think that I was a Christian when I was a Trinitarian, but I was confused. When I read the Bible, I was thinking that Jesus was the Son of God and the Father is God, just like it's portrayed. But then now we get into arguments and apologetics, and I would, oh, maybe Jesus is God too. I don't really understand. I guess it's a mystery. So, you know, I was double-minded. I'd go back and forth. I wasn't worshiping a false god. I was worshiping God confusedly. You know, we mostly would pray to God in Jesus' name. We would worship God with our music and so on. It's just that sometimes I thought Jesus was God in disguise. Sometimes I held to like the descetic view that he's, that he's only apparently a human, but he's really God. And then sometimes I would dabble with the more traditional God-man kind of stuff, but it didn't really make any sense to me. So I'm very wary of condemning Anybody who might be a disciple of Jesus, I think I'll let Jesus do that. I'd like to have a nice, friendly argument about all these things, but I'm not inclined. I mean, what, what tells me that somebody is not a Christian is they act like they're not a Christian. Like, they just hate everybody. Or they're cussing, mean, just nasty, immoral people. Well, I don't think they're Christians then, because that's not what Christians do. But if they have some theory, you know, God help them. I've had a lot of theories myself. People like their theories. They get attached to them. 
You can uh, look at a book of evangelical scholarship by what on the face of it are good scholars, and they'll be like, well, in the gospel according to John, the author identifies Jesus as God and distinguishes Jesus from God all at the same time. Which is just total nonsense, right? I mean, is he that confused? That's like saying uh, Peter and John are the same person, but also those are two different persons. Like, that's not what the author thinks, right? Like, if, if you think that's what it says, you should go back to the drawing board and interpret it again. But, you know, when somebody with a PhD that teaches at a seminary says something that sounds like it's profound and you're aware that you have your own limitations, so may, maybe only certain learned people can understand these things. I mean, when you get to be responsible is the more you know, right? When you really get your head into the New Testament, into what they're actually saying, now you're responsible to agree with Jesus. Otherwise, you're not following Jesus anymore. There comes a point where you have to choose Jesus or the other guys. But, you know, most Christians are laboring under the assumption that following Jesus means following these bishops these priests, these pastors, these seminarians. God help them. God bless them. It's not my place to condemn them and call them names. The point is just that there's a conflict. Guess what? We're Protestants. There can be a conflict between the Bible and later traditions, and then when that happens, you got to go with the Bible, because that's going with Jesus. It's just like that. That's why we don't pray to saints. Mm -hmm. Jesus said, love you, yeah, I mean, it matters what kind of gospel you preach, and the gospel gets warped in weird ways, right? It becomes no longer about the kingdom, but now it's about flying off to heaven, escaping the body. But, you know, it's, it's interesting. A lot of uh, evangelicals have gone back to the kingdom thing, people like N.T. Wright and a host of other authors and people that read them. The gospel gets warped when it turns into God died for you, which is not anything it says anywhere in the Bible doesn't even sound like that even once. God sent somebody else to die for you in the Bible. So I find that one pretty disturbing. But the thing is, people who say that, they're thinking that Jesus is God, and they're turning right around and thinking that he's somebody else. I mean, they're just confused. But yeah, truth matters a lot. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. I think it matters tremendously. I'm just saying that God is merciful. I, I mean, I think what's required is very, very little. I think you have to believe that Jesus is God's Messiah to be saved, just like it says in Acts a bunch of times. Now, that brings along some, uh, you know, you have to believe there's one God, God sent Jesus, that God raised and exalted Jesus. But basically, it's just that Jesus is the Messiah with all that entails. Now, if you believe that, I think you can be saved. Yeah, but what if you come along and add all this stuff I think it introduces confusion and bad things, but I don't think it means you don't believe those simple things that you need to believe to be saved. So, if you ask me how could God allow the mainstream to go wrong for so long, basically my answer is I don't know, because he lets us mess things up. But if you look at the contents of like most of what's in the Apostles' Creed, all Christians are saying those things. 
Uh, never mind about the Catholic Church, quite what that means and descending to hell. But anyway, most of the stuff in there, that that's just what all Christians think. Okay, but those are the basic truths, that there's one God, the Father Almighty. He sent his son, Jesus. He was crucified for us and raised on the third day. So that's great. Like, he's preserved that, but he's allowed a lot of craziness to go along with it. It's different in different places, of course. I don't know. All, all we can say is let's try to be faithful to Jesus and the apostles and let God work it out someday. Since I came to this view, all of a sudden the New Testament makes sense to me. It doesn't need all this later stuff. It makes sense on its own terms. There's one God. He sends his spirit. Uh, he sent his human son. I mean, it's something that an eight-year-old can understand, really. And that's how old I was when I was born again. So there is a preservation there of the little simple basic core. The only thing that's disturbing is just sort of how much stuff gets loaded onto that by people. I would say we dare not do that because we don't have any authority to do that. Maybe one last question. With two that's the, the argument that I've always come up against with people. That's the, the man side of Jesus is that, that's the divine side of Jesus is that. Is it all philosophical? Is it all from the church fathers? Or was there any scriptural basis at all that they're seeing, that they're taking that understanding? What would be a really good way to contradict them or, or give them a more biblical uh, option? There's really no scriptural basis for it. There's a couple things they misunderstand that they think implies it, like uh, when it says that the fullness of the divine nature was in Jesus. But I think the divine nature there is just God. It's the same as that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, or the Father's in me doing his works. It's the same thing. What happened with the two natures business, it's very strange. In the 100s, People speculating from all different quarters, Gnostics, mainstreamers of different kinds. By natures, they didn't mean properties, they meant things. The way you detect a nature is by its characteristic actions or effects. So if it quacks, it's a duck. If it moves, it's a cow. If it barks, it's a dog. If it issues forth miracles, obviously it's a divine nature, right? Right. And if it cries and gets hungry and gets killed, it's a human nature, meaning a human being. So they said, oh, they just can't, he just can't be a mere man. That's crazy talk, mere man, blah. Silanthropos in Greek, silanthropism. It's very strange that you should think that you have these powers of detecting like the metaphysical composition of Jesus. I mean, there's a divine nature there. It's God. And that is what the mainstream Christians called dynamic monarchians said. They said, you're right, there is something divine in Jesus. It's God's word. It's God's power, his spirit. He says in John in one place that God gives him his spirit without measure. But the Logos theorists of that time said, hey, there's this second and lesser deity. It's the Logos or the word of John 1. And God is too transcendent to create directly. Right, right. We all know this because Plato says it in one of his dialogues. So God has to have this intermediary who's neither created nor uncreated to be able to create. Oh, good. We got that. We got this Logos. Also, now we can talk about this Logos, like this lesser God of reason that makes all reasonable men reasonable. And the Greeks and the Romans liked this a lot. It sounded a lot more exciting than this Jew that got killed. They didn't like the Jews. 
and that Christians worshipped this Jew that got executed seemingly for treason. That was kind of embarrassing. But to carry on about this logos by which God interacts with the world was really neato to them. And uh, after a lot of resistance, a lot of resistance that went on for in places for 200 years, that view went out. And so, oh yeah, obviously he can't be just a man. He's got to have a divine nature because look at all these divine things. Right, well, Moses doesn't have a divine nature. Prophets speak for God, but they don't have a divine nature. You know, occasionally they raise the dead and so on. So, yeah, it's off to the races philosophically with divine nature's theories. It's still a big ongoing project. There's a notion that somehow the contradictions get sorted out by two natures. So you're like, well, how can God die if God's more like, I don't know, two natures? Well, wait, how does that even help? It's not clear how it helps. How does he limited knowledge, but he's omniscient? I don't know, two natures? Like, but how it actually helps like, is very, very hard to show. Some people realize this, some of the Christian philosophers and theologians. But, I mean, just take, take the one, uh, how, how can God die? I don't know, two natures? Okay. If a nature is just a property that he has then the human nature makes him able to die, but the divine nature makes him unable to die. So now you just said one and the same guy can't die and can die, which is pretty sad. That can't be true. Sometimes they'll say, well, he tasted death, maybe. He experienced death. Okay, so he didn't really die, but he sort of went through something almost as bad. But it says he died. You can't be a Christian and say that Jesus never died. That never has been allowed. Sometimes they think, well, the divine nature went on living, but the human nature died. Popes are on record as saying this in the 300s, and other influential theologians are like, the human nature died. What, that thing that's not a person? You have to have a human life to lose a human life. To have a human life, you have to be a human person. This thing which isn't alive and doesn't have a point of view, it can't die. That's just nonsense. So, it looks like you just have two Jesuses, like one of them can die and one of them can't, which is what the Gnostics said, which is terrible because there's only one Jesus in the Bible. So, it's still ongoing, like quite, how does this two natures thing work? And very clever people are still coming up with new, heretofore unheard, very clever things to try to make it work out. Very well put. Our goal should be to show that it's not needed. If you like to play these games, if you're a philosopher like me, we can have a fun argument over all this stuff, but really it's wheel spinning because you don't need to have a two-natured Jesus. Now, they've invented all kinds of um, different justifications about why supposedly you need this, because he couldn't be valuable enough to pay for our sins unless he's divine. Really? Where's that written, you know? There's a history of just kind of making stuff up. He, he couldn't be sinless unless he was divine. What? Doesn't say that anywhere. Plus, if he was divine, he couldn't be tempted. So then, well, we don't mean divine necessarily in the way the one God's divine. Maybe it's a lesser sense, but you're not supposed to say that. It's a morass, but it's an unnecessary morass. So we'd be better off without it. We'd be better off talking about things that matter. Thanks for coming, guys. Thanks for the questions. Really appreciate it. Before we go, just a couple of reminders. First, 
time is running out to sign up for the first ever conference of the Unitarian Christian Alliance, which is to be held in Nashville, Tennessee, October 15, 16, and 17 of 2021. For more about that conference, go to UnitarianChristianAlliance.org and click on the conference link. Also, I talk a bit more about the conference and why I'm so excited about it in a new interview that I've just recorded for Sean Finnegan's Restitutio podcast that should be released on about September 22nd, 2021. So do check that out. I talk about what's going on with the UCA, a bit more about why I'm so excited about the Theophilus Press and the new Thomas Emlin book, and also more about the conference and even a bit about what I'll be presenting there. This week's thinking music has been the track Sector Vector by Little Glass Men. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. For listening, we'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind. <laughs>